Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, sitting next to Jeff Cannon. Jeff, how are we doing today? Uh, I'm doing very well, Andrew. How are you doing? Doing fantastic. We hope everybody that is listening is having a great day. You are a premium subscriber, and we definitely appreciate you being a premium subscriber. And this is our premium podcast. Uh, so before we jump into that, I always like to start these off. How was your week last week? Good. How was your week? My week was wonderful. Thank <laughs> okay. you for asking. <laughs> um, so the other day, yesterday, I listened to Monish Prabhai's lecture to Boston College um, students. And mm -hmm. this is something that he does every single year. And I really liked it. It was about two hours long. I took a bunch of notes on it. I tweeted out what I thought were some large takeaways from it. Mm -hmm. And I figured we could talk a little bit about it today. Okay. What's interesting was he, in the beginning, he spent some time talking about the history of markets and like returns and people listening won't be able to see this, but I'm looking at, he put up a Dow chart from 1896 to 2020, okay. just to show like the different distributions of those returns in different markets and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But the biggest takeaway I thought was he has committed to no longer looking for so-called 50 cent dollars. Okay. And he says that he has switched to this other side of just looking for long runway businesses and setting and forgetting it. And he said when he first started his fund in yeah. the late 90s, it was the best time to do 50 cent dollars. Right. And he was going over these different charts, basically saying that he thinks going forward, the 50 cent dollars won't be the best approach to investing and the setting and forgetting it will be the best approach. And I thought this was actually fascinating. I think I have a lot of respect for Pabrai. I know people mm -hmm. on Fintwit sometimes like to talk about his recent returns or whatever. Look, guys, anyone that is under their high watermark for 10 years, 10, plus, right. 10 or 10 plus years, by the way, he doesn't charge a management fee. Okay. He does a 6% um, hurdle with 25% of the profits. Yeah. Very much aligned with his investors. He's rich himself. But anyone that is under their high watermark for 10 plus years and then gets back above it, mm -hmm. that says a lot about him. That he didn't shut down or something and give the money back yes. and start something else. Most up. investors, they would just yeah. shut down and start it back up again. Yeah. You know, so I'm bullish on him. I have a lot of respect for him. Um, I don't know. I mean, not a lot of people would do that. You think about 10 years. Oh my gosh, how much has my life changed in the past 10 years? That's a long freaking time. Mm -hmm. So good for him. Anyways, he talked about, you know, early on in his career and stuff like that. I thought it fascinating. He's had two 100 baggers personally. Okay. In the late 90s, he invested $10,000 in an India listed company, cash out at like one to 1.5 million, he said. And then this other one was he invested $100,000 and he cashed out at like 10 million or something. Crazy. Um, and he was talking a little bit about Charlie Munger how Charlie Munger doesn't ever buy into companies above intrinsic value, mm -hmm. but he's perfectly okay holding companies above intrinsic value. And he gave the example of like Costco and stuff like that. A lot of times when Munger invests, it is very permanent yeah. as long as the internal rates you know, are good and stuff like that. Uh, so I found that very fascinating. Um, and those hundred bagger examples, by the way, Yeah. And he was using it to sort of justify, I guess, what he's doing or justify what he's talking about. He said in both cases, it was a situation where he had his shares, 
He put them in the drawer and he closed the drawer and he never thought about them. Yeah. Never looked at them. Nothing like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was very fascinating. And I have some key takeaways from this, which we'll go over in a second. Another thing I thought he was very interesting when he was talking about, you know, extremes and stuff like that. Okay. So like extremes on both ends. Mm-hmm. So stock prices are very high and stock prices are very cheap. As long as humans are still involved in investing, you'll always reach those extremes. And he says, the more fun the party, the more extreme the hangover. All right. So I found that funny. Um, but he talked about how he's starting to switch from this. He was talking about different examples. He was talking about NBR, for example, how their religion at that company is to take all their capital basically and buy back their shares. Mm -hmm. He said over time, the top line of NBR has only gone up like two to three times. I don't know if he was talking like over the last 20 or 30 years, he may have said it. Um, maybe it was 20 years, uh, but they've also, you know, bought back 56 plus percent of their shares outstanding. So I thought that was fascinating. He said 2020 was one of the highest learning years of his life. He said the other time was, I think, 1994 when he first discovered. Bible. OK. Um, he talked about. Did he talk about if it was because of COVID and things like that? or what? He said whether that's because of COVID and I had more time mm-hmm. or prices or what. But it sounds like he's had this huge paradigm like shift. Right. If you will, of really just focusing on these incredibly high quality businesses. And he talked a little bit about this process. Now, that doesn't mean that he is going to pay 30 or to 40 times earnings for business. Mm-hmm. And he very much said that. But he did say sometimes these companies become cheap. Okay. And it's an opportunity. He exited Fiat in March. Okay. And he made two new investments. He said he spent a lot of time when the news started to come out in March thinking about what companies will be affected from you know a shutdown of some sort. Mm-hmm. Capitalism is very brutal. And... Uh, even the best businesses are fragile. Mm -hmm. And he said, that's what his mindset was. And he said, Fiat has extreme operating leverage. And he felt like if they were shut down, they would just decimate the stock. And he said he sold out actually uh, a lot lower than where the stock currently is trading. But he made two new investments and he said he's very happy. But he said his goal is over the next couple of years is to fill out the portfolio with these very long runway type of companies to set it and forget it. Um, and he's talked about once Munger finds these great compounders, that's exactly what he's looking for. Let's see. What else did I have here? Okay. So we could go over the questions that people asked Mm -hmm. and then what his answers were. So on investing mistakes and anyone that has started his career knows this, but he has said that he's had a few zeros because the businesses had a ton of leverage. So he said, um, that that has been quote unquote, well-received. Okay. <laughs> he's like, that lesson has been well-received. He's also had a difficult time in financials. So he stays away from financials. Yeah. And he's very cautious to leverage. He did say, though, that some of the companies he owned does have leverage or like employ excessive mm-hmm. leverage. But he said he's really trying to focus on that more okay. going forward. On valuing companies, he said it depends on the business. The person has like, do you use a DCF? Do you use, mm-hmm. you know, all the normal questions. Yeah. He said, well, it depends on the business. He said, you have to get to the factors that matter. He was talking about like the factors of NVR, which I just talked about. And he said, can you understand the two to three variables that are going to drive the outcome, which is what everybody says. But the part that he added on that thought was interesting was, and is the CEO slash entrepreneur focused on those variables? Yeah. So in the example of NVR, for example, mm-hmm. that's their religion is to take all their extra, right. their, their 
earnings basically and plow back and buy back their own stock you know on the retail landscape he says he never liked retail and he was talking about you know in life you can have a very very happy life never understanding what makes retail businesses go up never understanding you know why or why you shouldn't invest in retail Mm -hmm. he's like i just dumped it out he's like i take it and i just don't even think about it so anything that's retail he also said financials and pharma he just doesn't think about um and he was talking about the problem with brick and mortar retail is it's the most transparent of businesses Mm -hmm. and he was talking about how sam Wallen took advantage of that so in a recent podcast when i gave the example of sam getting on the ground and measuring the width between shelves Mm -hmm. when he was out of the country like on vacation that's what monish was talking about so he was saying in retail, there's no trade secrets. And he said the most important thing in business is what he calls RRS. He's like, I just made that up. Okay. Reoccurring revenue streams. Yeah. And that's the holy grail of what we want in business. The reason retail is such a massive graveyard is because the customer has no contract with you. So basically, you're having to compete with them every single day. And he was mm-hmm. telling a story about how he was riding a bike with a friend. And basically, somebody was saying, I just don't understand why anyone would invest in Wendy's. There's so many different options out there. Okay. What advantages do they have? And that's when he said, you know, you could live a very happy life, never really understanding that and just kind of putting it in the too hard pile. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you just have to constantly compete for the customers. And he was talking about, you know, Costco is a phenomenal business doing that. Amazon, Walmart, stuff like that. Do you have any thoughts on retail in general? Do you have any I don't, companies that you just or industries that you just completely ignore? Yes, I have lots of industries that I just completely ignore. Um, like what? Uh, bio, biotech, semiconductors, um, things like that. Uh, retail, for the most part, I ignore, I would say. Um, you have highlighted there, uh, which I agree with. Buffett's record in retail investing is poor. He said it's awful. Yeah, he said if you actually... Very, like, very bad. If you dollar weighted it it would be terrible yeah it's not good he said other than nebraska furniture market he thinks every other one has basically failed yeah not been good right it's just not a good record at all whereas his record in some other things like we talked about media if you just took media things so just like newspaper advertisers support media things so like newspapers if you want to count ad agencies in there and stuff very good record banks insurers very good record most of his money i'd say comes from banks insurers media advertising um and then some brand stuff. So I don't like retailers that much as a thing to invest in usually. I do feel though very differently about like a fast food restaurant and a retailer. I think they're very different. I also feel somewhat different with supermarkets and other kinds of retailers too. Um, the, the thing is high frequency, low ticket with some branding and stuff can really mean that there's loyalty there in a different way. So if you're spending $6 for your average Wendy's each day or whatever. Um, you could be a pretty regular customer there. In a way, you can never be with Walmart with all the different choices you have and how you could spread things between them. Um, but supermarkets, they feel somewhat differently. But even then, it depends on the environment. It could be really competitive, and you could really spread it around that way, how you spend. So, you know, it's a lot more competitive here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area than it is in uh, northern New Jersey and stuff. Hmm. When you're talking about Buffett and just how great of – a financial investor he is mm-hmm. like buffett just doesn't lose money in banks no, right i think he, he lost did. money in irish banks irish yeah banks. but compare that to something like tesco or something yeah. you know, that he lost money on in retail and so many other retail mm-hmm. things that he lost money he just, on. He, d- he understands it really good he's a great bank yeah investor. like he just he's an expert in it yeah i would think that if he didn't have a ton of um 
money to invest, he would steer clear of retail, but maybe not a Buffett, you know, mm-hmm. but yeah, I would think he would focus on things like financials and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And asked where he starts uh, for finding companies. He said a couple hacks he uses as he looks at what other great investors buy. Anyone that knows Monish know this is uh, mm-hmm. true. He says he makes a list of other investors. He uses data Roma. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and there's that website too. Yeah. Yeah. And then he says the other thing is really going A to Z mm-hmm. and reading the description. <laughs> is this in my circle of competence? If not, I mean, like being in a harsh grader, like, is this my circle of competence? Yes. Okay. Maybe I'll go interest, like put that in the mm-hmm. maybe pile. If it's not, you just throw it away. Yeah. And being a really harsh grader on that. Yeah. I really like that website because it has like nothing else. It's no ads. It's, it's very it's quick. just completely yeah. stripped down to like, you just click on the name of the Maybe person ads, you want to read about. Easy. And you know, it, it looks like it was made in 2000. Well, there's probably no ads on mine, but <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And for him, anything in retail, gone. Anything in pharma, gone. Anything financials, gone. Yeah, that's true. I, w- I want to do pharma, I think. The last, I've, I've looked at some pharma things, but, you know, I always pass on them. And then, honestly, listening to his process, I was like, that's kind of like mine, too. He said, mm-hmm. you know, he'll look at it from a very high level overview and be like, well, it's trading at 30 times earnings. I'm probably not going to be interested. Gone. Yeah. That's right. I mean, if it's 30 times record earnings, it would be very hard for us to ever buy it. Mm-hmm. We know that right away. Buffett would know that right away. Sometimes I think to myself, I'm like, is this a mistake? Yeah. Now, like Buffett, if he was looking at it, it was like, you know, back when he was investing in newspapers, if it was like a newspaper or something, then Buffett, or like an insurer thing or something, then Buffett might be like, okay, I'll look deeper into this. When Mm -hmm. it's something you're an expert in that industry, you could see the lower numbers and get a better feel for it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, usually that's what you know, like the price or that it's in an industry that there's just no way. I read the business description and say, that's not going to happen. And for people to say, well, you could miss so many opportunities doing that. That's okay though. I just, okay. I said, I don't do um, biotech and semiconductors. They both are, the together, they probably are the biggest source of net nets. And I've invested in net nets plenty of times. I've never bought either kind of those. I've never bought a semiconductor net net. Mm-hmm. I've never bought a biotech net net. And they're actually big sources of that. Uh, I might have bought something that was, had once been involved in biotech was a shell mm-hmm. when I bought it. But So this next one fascinated me because it resonated a lot with us. Somebody asked him, how does he get comfortable with investing overseas? Where like the accounting standards are different, auditing's different, all sorts of stuff like that. And Monish said, if he ever invests in a company that's overseas, yeah. kicking the tires, seeing the company, meeting with management is a part of the process. Okay. He will not buy a company overseas unless he does that. And right. he did say too, which quite honestly, I thought was kind of bold. I didn't tweet it out on my thread because I knew someone would like probably take jabs at him or whatever. Okay. He said that he thinks it's the odds are like non-existent that you'll get in trouble with fraud, invest in a company in the United States and that you'll like lose, have like absolutely oh, lose everything. I the company's a fraud, agree a public company. hundred percent for some people, mm. but will parts of the public be taken by fraud all the time? Yes. But you could tell that they're fraud. Maybe he was talking about himself. Yeah. You no, know, but I agree with that. He mm. won't be taken by a fraud. Buffett won't be taken by a fraud by those things and stuff like that. Um, yeah. I don't generally think that, I would misjudge a fraud in the United States. Mm -hmm. Is it possible in other countries? Maybe. What's most common is someone brings me something and I'm like, I think this is a fraud, but I can't prove it, Mm -hmm. you know? And it can be hard to prove it in other countries. It can be really hard compared to the United States. Like, I don't have enough information, you know? And there's some short sellers that go over there and figure it out and stuff. But I can't prove from the U.S. that something in China is a fraud usually. He's like Enron, for example, would have been an easy pass for him yeah. because he's like, I didn't understand the business. Yeah, <laughs> he's exactly. like, I couldn't understand how they made money. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. On changes made during the pandemic, like I said, he exited Fiat Chrysler or FCAU. Was that Fiat? Yeah, yeah. Chrysler, Chrysler, Chrysler yeah, yeah. yeah. 
and he made two new investments. He didn't say uh, what new companies he invested in. Somebody asked him, is value investing dead? He said, growth of value adjoined at the hip. You're better off having high return on equity and high growth. He has transitioned from 50 cent dollars to businesses with long runways. He's on the set it and forget it train. Okay. On moats, he said, it should be very obvious to you. I talked about this in one of our recent podcasts. He said, when you look out 10 to 15 years, what does that business look like? What are the probabilities of that happening? Are the probabilities skewed to a favorable outcome? What will the ROEs be in the future? But he talked about start out with admiring the business and the moat today and then think about the future. So mm-hmm. he was talking about like Starbucks, for example. He admires that business. Yeah. And the fact that it's such an integral part of our lives. Mm-hmm. You know, then what could that look like in the future? Stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, on selling, this is my favorite part. He says okay. it's all about opportunity costs. You have to constantly and continuously be looking for new ideas. And he said, the mistress always looks hotter than the wife. You have to make sure that the mistress is actually hotter. Yeah, that's the biggest one I agree with there. Yeah. Do you want to give the example you gave in that podcast about you think it should be 50% more attractive? Yeah, yeah, I think the, the John Templeton one. John Templeton had a rule that a stock had to be 50% more attractive for him to uh, to switch out of what he already owned. Templeton was actually a pretty long investor. He said on average, he was... he didn't think of it or intend to be a long-term investor, but just because of the kinds of things he bought, um, he's very into overlook stuff and things like that. Uh, his average holding period was probably getting to be almost six years, right? So that's pretty long for someone who, a mutual fund manager who um, didn't think of himself as being focused on like this super low turnover or whatever. Uh, but yeah, he said that that was one of the biggest issues is that you do misjudge that, the business that you know so well. So he had that rule in place, yeah. Mm. Um, he was asked a question on optionality in businesses being mispriced. And he was just talking about basically markets don't like a wide range of outcomes. They yeah. like predictability. Yeah. And markets don't appreciate or like the messiness of the real world. Capitalism is brutal. Yeah, we talked like, about the movie. real world is brutal. Yeah, we talked about movie theater stocks. Mm-hmm. And so I, like think that, investor, and I think edge. that's kind of the two, the two reasons why it's really cheap now is that um, one, we can't prove that they can survive. Now, some of them won't survive. I mean, I'm saying AMC won't survive. Did Maybe it'll survive. Did movie, uh, movie and Grill? Dallas one uh, filed for bankruptcy? Yeah. Hadn't they... Is it the second time they filed? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The concept, I think, has some issues. But yeah. Um, but uh, say like something like Cinemark, whatever. I gave the example of like, well, if they diluted by half, let's say they needed to raise... Say it's a billion dollar market cap. They have enough to get through however many months, but they need another five hundred million dollars or whatever. Well, if you dilute it by half or by two thirds or something, you would still have something that presumably would like if it gets back to what it was doing before, after that much dilution, you'd do better than the market, you know? Mm-hmm. So is but who wants to buy something that could be diluted by a lot or you can't prove that it will survive, right? And I think you did say the next six months is going to be a constant news flow of well, negative that's, information. That's the reason why I think the number one reason is is it's not, I think it's, it's no hope, no short-term hope. People will buy into a bad short-term if it's like, well, there's hope, something could happen, <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe yeah. they'll come out with something. But my point was like, yeah, even if they come out with a vaccine immediately and everyone gets it, that doesn't change the fact that you're not going to have any movies that people want to see till April. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he was asked again about long runways, and he said, well, if you make eight to 10 bets on carefully selected stocks, all with long runways, and you're careful about the valuation, not even crazy about it, but just mm-hmm. careful about it, even if you're wrong 40% of the time, 
you'll still do okay if you get a couple, you know, yeah, you one do becomes very a 30 well. bagger or, you know, and the other ones do you go up maybe three to four times. It depends. Like yeah. It depends on what you mean by wrong. But if you're wrong, just in the sense that it underperforms the market, not that you're wrong, like you go broke on any of them, mm -hmm. then actually doing that and holding on, you can be way below 50%. You can actually mostly be wrong mm -hmm. and your performance will beat the market by quite a bit because of the way compounding works. So it, it, as long as there's a floor on your bad performance so that it's not, you know, um, if, if he's getting some that are 20% of your compounders and then his ones he's wrong on are 5% of your compounders, mm. then he can be wrong on most of his 10 stocks and actually make money. Uh, I mean, actually beat the market. Uh, the only issue is, you know, from his past and stuff, he did have some that actually were zeros. And so if you factor that in, that does really reduce how often you can be wrong if the magnitude of the losses, sometimes you get a zero. Mm -hmm. If it's uh, a big part of your portfolio, if you get a zero on a small part of your portfolio, it doesn't matter. Sure. On competitive advantages, he was saying that the, something that's really served him well is this idea of copying and cloning. Mm -hmm. He's gotten a lot of flack for, you know, cloning and stuff like really? that. I mean, that, well, it's a huge part of his process is sifting through 13Fs and stuff like that. And sometimes I hear people kind of like joke about that or whatever. But Well, is that because they won't clone him? And I, they're like, you're just cloning someone else, knows? so you're no good for me. I don't know. But he was talking about like if you look at a company like Microsoft, they're an ultimate cloner. Starbucks brought the Italian cafe to the United States. Of course. They're, they're a great cloner. And now yeah. they're going to Italy themselves, you know, stuff like that. It's really someone that has like a great new idea who makes all the money from that idea. Yeah. He didn't really get, yeah, exactly. He didn't really give like a, any other like black and white examples, I guess, like in today's market. But, you know, every situation is different. Mm -hmm. um, somebody asked him about like his investing process and documenting it. One thing I thought was interesting is he said for most of his career, uh, career, yeah. function alone now he has two guys that were from as analysts and he doesn't use any excel models okay the business is not linear um but he says sometimes his analysts do but a lot of what he does is just you know reading and checking the facts um you know so he said i have a model in my head trying to figure out what is going on with the business how does it work how it makes money and then you just go deeper from there mm -hmm. and try to you know see if the facts check out He's talked about his checklists a lot and he said they protect him from him basically. Yeah. And you know, every business has issues and you need to know what the issues are and decide if the issue will be the thing that could potentially ruin the company. Mm -hmm. So it's like understanding that, but he reads Valley Investors Club, some zero. He said, sometimes I read Seeking Alpha. He uses data Roma and reverse engineers positions. Yeah. And this is my favorite Quote, you said you keep poking around and once in a while something hits you on the head with a two by four. I'd say that's true. That's usually how it, you know, I mean, you, you, remember said you have you to turn around, over the most rocks. Whenever you sift around, you're kind of like, gosh, I'm just looking at so many different things and mm -hmm. I'm not finding anything that's interesting. But then yeah. every now and then you find one and you're like, spend a lot of time on it. You go through hundreds and hundreds of things that are disappointing or whatever. Like I said, you get that tinkle. You just, you, yeah. tingle. you just, you just yeah. know it. <laughs> um, he was talking about the Kelly criterion. Yes. And he says that. Which we've never done a podcast officially on, right? It's hard to do, I think. Like, like how do you do a podcast on We it? tried to do one, didn't we? And then it like, we lost it or we, what happened? I think we stopped halfway through. We stopped and I decided think we stopped not to do it? Okay. Through. All right. Yeah, I think we did. Well, I knew it was going to be tough when about five minutes before you were looking up the math behind it on, um, okay, online, um, you know, like, just to like, yeah. see how could we explain this? I'm like, Ooh, this may be a little too academic. <laughs> okay. To do it. Um, but Monish says if he could redo his book, yeah. he would take that whole part out. I feel to be honest, 
value investors should take that out. Yeah. I don't feel the description in any books that I've read about it is a very good description of the Kelly criterion. I do believe it's a really interesting idea, and I think people should read A Man for All Markets and Fortune's Formula. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think it's poorly understood in other things. Like I've seen things, we've talked about poker before. I've seen things where I think they benefit a lot from keeping, like in terms of uh, actually um, understanding why you can, we were talking about being right and being wrong, why you could actually be better than average and end up poorer than average is because you don't understand the Kelly criterion. In other words, you could bet too much at times. And the Kelly criterion, one way to think about it, just like, so the Kelly criterion, if you actually think about it in terms of investing, here's part of the problem I see. I think it's usually going to give you an answer we could argue about exactly what the answer will be, but it's going to be in the range of 10 to 50%. I think you're often going to be talking more like 10, 20 to 40, uh, 45, something like that. It's not very hard to figure out. It's going to tell you that you might be okay owning like five stocks. You definitely will be okay owning 10 stocks, but you um, should not own just one stock. You know what I mean? And so... I think it's more helpful to people to tell them not to overbet and like how even if you have a big edge, you can't bet that much. So like as an example with the Kelly Criterion thing, this is so the why I use the poker examples is clear example of how you can do the math. But say you're doing something and they're like, oh, well, like almost 50-50 is a coin flip, but 75-25 isn't. Okay. But 75-25 by the Kelly Criterion still has you betting a fairly small amount of your, not small, but it's telling you that you shouldn't bet half of, you shouldn't bet more than half of all your savings. As if it's like a similar bet. Yeah, because eventually you'll go broke. So what I mean is, is, is if you knew what your cards were and what their cards were and that you were 75-25 favorite, you actually should not go all in if it's half of, if it's meaningfully more than half of all your life savings or something. Because... It's actually a problem just geometrically and what the returns will be because it, think about it. You're going to lose one out of four times. Mm. So if you play more than four times of this, you know, there's a chance that you'll lose it. So if you you can't be betting 95% or something of everything you have. So um, that's the idea for investors. But I don't think for the most part investors need to be told that. In my experience talking to people, they always are way lower than the levels at which the Kelly criterion would matter. Now for Pabri, I'm not sure that's true. He's one of the only investors that I could think of that actually might already, other than Buffett, you know, might Munger and some people like that, might already be at the levels where the Kelly criterion would actually matter. But to almost everyone I talk to, it's like, well, should I put in 5, 10, 15, 20%? I don't think the Kelly criterion answers that question for you because unless your edge is very small, it's going to tell you to put in numbers like that. Mm-hmm. Like, and the other thing, which is common sense, but I think is a great idea, is if you have no edge, you can't bet any amount no matter what. So you always you can only bet when you have a positive edge and don't bet to the point that you could have catastrophic risk. For most people, I'd say that's going to mean don't buy a stock that's less than 10%. If, if you want to make a 10% of your portfolio, don't have it at all. And I think for the average person, it's also going to mean there's never going to be a situation in your life where you want more than half of your savings in one thing. Even if it's like a merger arbitrage, I'm sure this is going to go through whatever, and you have a million dollars, don't put 600000 in it. Now, the Kelly Criterion will sometimes tell you to do that, but I don't think that's the kind of answers that are going to help people. So it's kind of like for a shorthand thing, we could often be telling people, look, five stocks might be fine, but one stock isn't. And don't ever put, don't ever, if you think that you can't put 10% of your net worth in something, 
then you shouldn't be in it at all mm-hmm. because you have no way of knowing like the the edge there you know mm-hmm. is big enough yeah he said he doesn't use it and it was a mistake to put it in the book it works really well if you get a bunch of similar bets like flipping a coin but he doesn't think it applies to investing because of the range of outcomes and companies he would ignore it completely he does not think it's relevant that's what he said about it yeah i i would like to see a lot less discussion of kelly criterion in the value investing uh community especially because i think a lot of the articles and things about it just aren't that really that good on staying within your circle of competence he said you could really throw away like 99% of the ideas that come your way, be a harsh creator. He talked about Charlie Munger's friend that's a billionaire and has only invested in real estate a couple miles around the Stanford campus. He said like if someone will come up to him and say, hey, I got this really good opportunity in Montana. Nope, Mm. not interested in it. Um, Being in a narrow circle of competence is an edge. And of course, the most important thing is not stepping outside of it. Um, So just be harsh be focused on, you know, the most obvious stuff. And he said that the most obvious stuff usually is things we're consumers of. Buffett's talked about, obviously, circle of competence a lot. And the key is knowing where that edge lies and never stepping over it. Mm-hmm. It's like the Tom Watson quote, I am no genius. I'm just smart in some areas and tend to stay there. Yeah. On judging management teams, he was just saying to, you know, in public markets, especially, we have histories of mm-hmm. all this information. Focus on what they've done, not what they say. Um, you know, he was talking about he owned, when he first bought into Fiat, yeah. he also owned GM because he thought GM was cheap. Okay. He's like, but just the more he studied Fiat, he sold GM because he was like, Sergio, which was the CEO, yeah. the way he thought about it, the way he conveyed it, he was just a first class operator and he just didn't feel the same for GM. Yeah. He was actually talking about Tesla and mm-hmm. how, you know, Tesla and Elon is such a fanatic about what he does. And it's just, it's very hard to, you know, go against that. And that is, I mean, Elon is a huge part of the investment case for Tesla. Yeah. And a huge fear for his competitors. Maybe he'll even That's do more damage saying, for competitors. He was than, saying, though, for like competitors and yeah. stuff, you're competing with someone. He literally said this you're competing with somebody that put two mm-hmm. rockets on the moon back to back recently. Mm-hmm successfully yeah and he said that you're competing with somebody that understands physics and right. stuff like that you know so you know a good management team though when you when, when you come across one i think you do and you know yeah. you have a bad one too yeah it's often very easy to see from the track record like he said for public companies i'd look mostly at the track record or what they're doing and avoid listening if they say something if what they've done and what they say look like two different things be very very cautious about that I can think of only one example where we've kind of said, oh, I think there's a change there and stuff, and I'm comfortable with that. But um, generally, people's past behavior is a pretty good predictor of their future behavior. They're a little bit better predictor than what how they what they say they're going to do is mm-hmm. what they've actually done. Mm-hmm. And then they ended the two-hour lecture by giving advice to the students. And he was talking yeah. about America. We're in an advanced civilization where there are so many safety nets. Okay. The odds that any of you, I guess people listening, especially, and people that were in that class, mm-hmm. will become homeless and not have, you know, food and stuff like that. The odds of that happening is pretty much nothing, right? Okay. Close to zero. Um, so he said, even given that reality, you should focus on the pursuit of passion. And mm-hmm. He said, what is really exciting for you? What do you really like to do? 
he said, you know, a lot of people, they have these long, elaborate plans where they say, I'm going to go into banking, right. and then I'm going to go back and get my MBA, and then I'm going to try going to the buy side. And Munger mm-hmm. says, just go for it in the beginning, right? Like, mm-hmm. just, just be bold and go for it. And I thought that was, you know, great. He was basically saying, you know, um, if you even if you want to take the path of least resistance, like sort mm-hmm. of the safety path, um, you have nights and you have weekends. When he first started his fund, and he didn't tell this story okay. in this lecture, but I've heard him tell it a different time. When he first started his fund, he said he basically did the bare minimum at his day job. All right. I'm sorry. This was, I think he was starting his other company. He was starting oh, okay. his other tech company first. He was basically doing the bare minimum at his day job, basically not enough to get fired. Mm-hmm. And then he said when his other company started to get traction and get off the ground, he went to resign from his current job and he told them why. And they were like, yeah, you know, we were wondering, we were like, gosh, that Monish guy, he really took a turn. Like, <laughs> he's great. He always does all of his work. But we really felt like he was going to, uh-huh. like, there's been some sort of change with yeah. him. And he's like, oh, I guess now it makes sense. I'm pretty sure the company ended up, like, investing in his new company. I don't know. Or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I thought that was great. He basically said, just go for it. Be bold. You don't need to have a 10 or 15 year path. Right. And he said, that's what Buffett would recommend as well. Yeah. Yep. Generally successful people recommend betting it all on your passion and stuff yeah yeah Yeah. so i thought that was um that was great that's definitely a great lecture that i recommend to everybody uh to listen to it's great i like i said i have a lot of respect for monish i think he's i think it's a great interview he is yeah he's a very enjoyable interview always one thing that was very surprising to me is that he has two analysts now yeah that is surprising to me he was always someone who did it completely alone right Mm mm-hmm so and uh yeah, I'm bullish on him into the future, so you'll definitely have to watch that All right. if you want some good And does content. he he does that regularly? That's not just a... It's a once-a-year thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. but they're not all on video that they have up there. No, they're for the a past lot. couple of years. Oh, yeah. yeah. I okay. know at one point he was he talked about his AUM. This was like three years ago. They were at $700 million. I don't okay. know what he's at now. Most of his fund is outside of the United States, so you can't even... You can tell from the filings. Yeah, if you want to yeah. data Roma him. Yeah, you it's look not at very it, helpful. Yeah, it's not a lot here. Um, but I thought that was, it was a a great chat. So I really recommend that. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us. You are a premium subscriber and we hope we make it worth it. Um, email me questions. I'm trying to answer questions at the end of the podcast. Focused compounding at gmail.com. Focused compounding at gmail.com. And we'll answer a couple of them at the end of each show. I didn't get any questions this week, so I'm not going (laughs) to go over any. So, if you have not downloaded the app, make sure you do that. Um, a lot of people like it. So we're very proud of that. So thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Have a great week.